Please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. Hear the gospel of the Lord. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not come also to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. Albert Schweitzer. It's a name maybe a few of you know, maybe many of you. Albert Schweitzer was one of the founders of the movement known as the Quest for the Historical Jesus. And Schweitzer is a man whose, uh, whose theology we would, need, we would need to be critical of at a few points. But Schweitzer gave up his status as a professor. He gave up his comfortable European life to go to Africa as perhaps the most famous medical missionary of the 20th century. And when Schweitzer was asked why he made the transition, he points directly to our parable this morning in Luke chapter 16. And he says, we are dives. Dives is the, is the Latin translation for the rich man in the parable. So you may hear older uh, expressions of this parable as Lazarus and dives or dives and Lazarus. Schweitzer said, we are dives. He said, and out there in the colonies, however, sits wretched Lazarus. And so in his mind, the parable spoke directly to Europeans. It spoke to their affluence and their comfort. And surely it still speaks to us. But to understand precisely what it says to us, we are going to have to look a little bit at the original audience, which almost certainly was the Pharisees. You may recall a couple weeks ago in the parable of the shrewd manager, sometimes known as the parable of the unjust steward, Jesus taught that we need to use mammon 
in a way that will have eternal value so that we're welcomed into eternal dwellings. And Luke tells us, just prior to this text, that when the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard Jesus give that parable, they ridiculed him. And Jesus has a few words to say to them before he takes up this parable. He, he, he warns them about their desire to self-justify, to justify themselves. And then he reminds them that the word of God or the law of God is continually applicable. Right before our text, he says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one jot of the law to become void. And so it's against this backdrop that he gives us this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, beginning in Luke 16, verse 19. This parable is unique in a couple ways. First, it's the only parable of Jesus where characters are named. That is, where they have personal names. And second, it focuses on the afterlife in a unique way. So, we want to look at this text under four headings. Four headings. The first is the original situation. And then, the deaths. The original situation, the deaths. Then there's a request for help. The request for help. And then the request for a sign. A sign. The original situation, the deaths, the request for help, and the request for a sign. So first, the original situation. The text begins, Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a certain rich man. Of course, rich men do not fare well in the parables of Jesus. So usually this is not good for them. Um, I often think Jesus never told a parable of the humble and generous rich man and the arrogant poor guy. There are no parables like that in Jesus. So, so he, he is introduced as the rich man, and the fact that he's unnamed, unnamed is the first sign of disapproval. The other main characters are going to be named here. And the rich man is clothed in purple and fine linen, expensive and rare garments. And he lived in luxury, the text says, every day. There were no bad economic days for this guy. He lives in a gated estate. And you can see in verse 20 that at his gate was laid a poor man, a beggar. The idea that the verb here is, is laid indicates that the man may have also been crippled. He was placed there by somebody else, it seems. And he's named, his name is Lazarus, which means God helps. He certainly receives no help from the rich man. Now this, this Lazarus is not the Lazarus who Jesus raises from the dead. They're not the same person. <laughs> but the fact that he's named shows God's concern for him and God's concern especially for the poor. He's covered, the text says, with sores which would make him not only ill but unclean. 
All he wants, the text says, is to be fed, verse 21, with what fell from the rich man's table. The, the very rich would often wipe the grease off their hands with bread and then just throw the bread under the table to be picked up by servants. And that may be what's in view here. Lazarus is just saying, then just, just give me the bread you wipe the grease off your hands with. And the text says even, even the dogs, these dogs are not domestic pets, right? They're, they're wild scavengers, also unclean. They would come and lick his sores since he's apparently unable to defend himself. And so, in Jesus' world, as is often the case in ours, the rich man's wealth would most likely, most likely, perhaps not in every case, but most likely be viewed as a sign of great blessing. And the poor man's poverty, if not an outright sign of God's curse, would at least make him suspicious. So that's the current situation. And it's that inequality which drove Schweitzer and has driven thousands to the mission field. It's okay to be motivated, first and foremost, by simple human need. The second point, then, is the deaths. And by this I mean the deaths of the rich man and Lazarus. And True to the nature of this text and to Jesus' parable telling in general, he gives the deaths in reverse order. Right? Because one of the points of the parable, obviously, is there's going to be an unexpected reversal that occurs in the text. And so Jesus does this in a subtle literary way. He tells you about the beggar's death first. So in verse 22, we're told the beggar died, was carried by angels, helped by God, if you will, again, to Abraham's side, or in some translations, Abraham's bosom. He's given no proper burial, which would be a sign of being cursed in the ancient world. And so here, we're probably to understand that Abraham's side is a place which anticipates the final state of feasting in the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus had already said that the kingdom Will be like reclining at will be a reclining at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Lazarus goes to a place which is a foretaste of that kingdom. And so while we're probably looking at what is, is called here the or is called in the history of the church the intermediate state, right? The intermediate state is the state after death and before the resurrection of the body, in between that state. Uh, but we should be careful about drawing too many conclusions, especially hard conclusions about the afterlife from this parable, uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, first, there are many things that happen here, like the sight the rich man has of Abraham and Lazarus, like a con the conversation itself, and the role of Abraham. We can't ascribe any of those to the intermediate state. That would be misreading the parable. Right? And... and it is a parable. We must remember that. And the point of the parable is not, even though people get fixated and fascinated with this, the point of the parable is not to teach about the afterlife. At least not in any fundamental or primary way. Um, 
you know, we can say some things from the parable, but we can't press the detail. The immediate point here is that Lazarus is now in a place of honor and security. He's destined for the kingdom of God. And so the end of verse 23 tells us the rich man also died. Unlike Lazarus, he receives a proper burial. The text notes that. But he ends up in Hades, which is the Greek translation of Sheol, the Old Testament place of the dead, translated as hell in the NIV. And again, we can't press the details here. For example, those in hell are not going to have conversations with Abraham. In fact, those in Sheol or Hades don't have conversations with Abraham. The rich man is in torment here, though. He is in torment. And thus, this is a place of judgment in the parable that points to everlasting judgment. There, I don't think there's much escaping of that. The text says, in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So the great reversal has now taken place after death. You know, it's a, it's a sad fact of history that um, you don't get to see this in this world, right? It's often simply the case that it is bad for some people all the way down, all the way to the end. It's unremitting poverty, alienation, strife, darkness, and despair. And to not see that or to not grant that is to simply not live in the real world. There are, the world is full of wretched Lazaruses, and they are wretched all the way to the end, at least from any economic or sociological measure. And that's why this future hope of the gospel is so fundamental. Jesus is not naive. There's no great transformation that fixes this until the end. And so this reversal of fortunes finally takes place after death. And without this hope, uh, life is, as Hobbes said, you know, brutal, short, nasty. Um, now, notice the parable here, it does not expressly tell us, it doesn't give us any basis for this reversal. This great reversal has taken place, and Jesus doesn't tell us why. He doesn't say the rich man had no faith, and Lazarus was a believer. But there are clues. There are clues. The rich man lived with contempt for the poor, and Lazarus' name, God helps, seems to at least indicate, perhaps, faith. But remember, if we remember the context, the earlier point about the audience being the Pharisees who were lovers of money, who ridiculed Jesus' teaching, there's really little need for clues. So let me just state it plainly, given the context. The rich man stands in for the Pharisees, and Lazarus stands in for the outcast poor who've responded to Jesus' message. It's a theme we've seen over and over and over again in the parables. In one sense, Jesus has, you know, it's almost spring. It's supposed to be spring. If you want the baseball analogy, Jesus has one pitch in the parable. It's like Mariano Rivera. He had one pitch. Nobody could hit it. Right? He told you what he was going to throw. He told you it would be 95 miles an hour. He'll throw the same pitch every time. No one's going to hit it. Well, Jesus does that with the parables. And the Pharisees never hit the pitch. Right? 
Look, I'm going to tell you another story. You're going to be the bad guys. The marginalized person is going to be the good guy. And they're like, what? He just throws the pitch by them again. And that's what's going on here. Over and over and over again, it's the same theme. Lazarus is, is, is the marginalized outcast, and the rich man is analogous to the Pharisees. This is the res- reversal of fates that Jesus announces in his ministry. So the third point is the request for help. In, in verse 24, the rich man calls out, Father Abraham. Now this is important. He's a son of Abraham, this rich man. He's a son of Abraham. He calls out to Abraham as his father. But John the Baptist has already warned, right, at the outset of Jesus' ministry that the Jews are not going to be able to say, we have Abraham for our father. Because God is able, John says, to raise up sons to Abraham from these stones. So we should see the rich man's cry here Indeed, the whole lifestyle of the rich man in light of a kind of ethnic arrogance that no son of Abraham could be excluded from the kingdom. And so he cries, Abraham, have pity on me. The same pity, the same mercy that he failed to show to Lazarus while he suffered outside his gate every day. Now he wants that mercy. And you know, the irony of the reversal is still lost on the rich man. It's still lost on him because he still appears, even as he cries for mercy, to view Lazarus as his servant slave. He asks Abraham, hey, could you send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and cool my tongue? I mean, the arrogance here is almost impossible to grasp. He still thinks that he can boss Lazarus around through intermediaries. He still views Lazarus as a contemptible errand boy for his needs. He's in torment, and he's still thinking about how he can get the takeout order executed properly. Could you send, could you send Lazarus for me and get me some relief? Maybe just dip his fingers in some water for my tongue? But in Abraham in verse 25 only confirms the reversal. And there's a, there is a tenderness from Abraham. He says, son. It means Abraham recognizes his Jewish ethnicity. Remember in your lifetime, you received good things. Good things are good. They're wonderful. But in this man's life, they became the enemy of the best things. And that's why they're dangerous. He says, but now, you know, Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. This is certainly not what the rich man wanted to hear. And there's no way he can get the result he wants. Often the very rich are used to getting the result they want. It's also less than I think maybe we would want to hear. Again, namely, what's missing here? Some sort of evangelical statement justifying the new reverse situation. But again, I don't think, given the context, Jesus needs to spell it out. So in verse 26, Abraham, and Abraham clearly speaks for God in the parable. He says, besides all this, 
Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. And people can't pass back and forth at all from one side to the other. So there is something said here about the intermediate state, for sure. Because in the ancient world, there were numerous stories of the dead being transported to the land of the living with either a message or a warning. This is a popular literary trope in the ancient world. It's actually fairly popular in the modern world in many ways. Um, And that possibility is raised here only to be roundly rejected. The intermediate state is fixed and permanent. The joy of the righteous, the torment of those wicked are irreversible at death. That's what Jesus says here. There's a great impassable gulf fixed between them. And so, the urgency then to heed the call of the kingdom, and especially the the call of the kingdom and its deep concern for the poor, is being brought home to us here. Especially it's being brought home in the original context to the Jewish leadership. The time to act, Jesus says, is now. You won't be able to act later. Later there's a great chasm fixed. And so the rich man's request for help. And notice, it's just a request for help. It is nothing like a cry of repentance. In any event, it's denied. It's denied. The fourth request point here then is the request for the sign. So the rich man now realizes his fate is sealed. And so he says to Abraham, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus. Again, again, he views Lazarus as an errand boy. Well, if you can't get Lazarus to cool my tongue, I have something else for him to do. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, this seems magnanimous. But it shows the typical Jewish concern at this point in history for family members only, virtually exclusively. This request is actually part of the problem. Lazarus was not family, so he was ignored. And Jesus has taught earlier, and Lord willing, we'll say more about this next week, but he has taught earlier that history that contains numerous idols, but one of the great idols of history is, in fact, the family. This parable has rightly, I think, wisely been called the parable of the six brothers. The parable of the six brothers. The sixth brother being Lazarus and the poor that he represents. And so this appeal to family, which can appear so pious and so righteous and so right, is actually part of the rich man's problem. Because it meant... We take care of our own and we can essentially ignore those that are not our biological bonds. So, we are obligated then to the poor and needy. But the rich man refused the obligation. He refuses the bonds of brotherhood outside his biological family. Refuses them. 
And Jesus, as we'll see next week, eventually comes and creates a new family and in fact gives it precedence over the biological family. Notice then in the parable of the six brothers something else that's implied. He says his brothers need to be warned by someone coming from beyond the grave. And so there's a sort of slanderous implication here in the rich man's speech to Abraham that, you know, I didn't get, I wasn't really warned appropriately. If you could give my brothers a real warning, that would be helpful. And so Abraham's response in verse 29, it does double duty. It speaks to his brother's current opportunity and it speaks to the rich man's lost opportunity. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What a magnificent statement this is about the necessity and the sufficiency, the infinite treasure of Holy Scripture. The law and the prophets are the only warning his brothers need. They're the only warning that will be given, and they are sufficient. And they are the very warning, Mr. Rich Man, that you refuse to heed. I mean, the, and, and what specifically is it about Moses and the prophets that you think Jesus has in view here? He has in view that plethora. It, the, the Old Testament is replete with texts on the absolute necessity of charity and mercy for the poor. It's that facet of the Old Testament that's in view here. I mean, you don't need someone to come back from the dead to tell you you should take care of a beggar licking his sores at your gates. You need Moses and the prophets. This is what Jesus came and preached. It's a crucial piece of his polemic, his his engagement with the Pharisees. He says, I'm the fulfillment of the law. This is why we pointed out, right before this text, Jesus says, not one jot or tittle of this law is going to pass away. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the law is not going to pass away. And so the rich man, like the Jewish leadership, he's actually refused to obey the Torah that they tote around with themselves all the time. Specifically, they haven't heard the prophetic call in the law and the prophets to care for the weak and the defenseless and the poor. And so God, speaking to Abraham, says they're going to be given no personal signs. And this is in keeping with how Jesus characterized them, right? He said, this is an evil and adulterous generation, a generation which craves signs, and thus no more signs are going to be given. Besides, in the mercy of God, they were given many signs, including the raising of another Lazarus. Do you know what the Jewish leadership does in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? They try to kill him. It wasn't a very effective evangelistic tool. See, this is often forgotten by people who insist that somehow, and sometimes you can hear atheists talk this way, if, if they got their own personal visit, their own personal audience with God, they would believe. Well, in fact, the whole history of Israel tells against it. The ministry of Jesus tells against it. But the rich man here, he's convinced, one more sign will do the trick for my brothers. 
Right? Verse 30. No, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. This idolatrous craving for signs dies very, very hard with some people. We have creation, which is a sign. We have conscience, which is a sign. We have the moral law, which is a sign. Israel is a sign. The Torah is a sign. The prophets are a sign. Jesus is the sign of signs. Jesus' works are signs. The resurrection is a sign. The apostles are a sign. The New Testament scripture is a sign. The church is a sign. The sacraments are a sign. But everybody wants one more sign. I just need one more sign, if you could. Maybe a little magic trick where somebody comes back from the dead. Now, now there is something very true that creeps into the rich man's request for a sign. He says, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. All of a sudden, the rich man realizes, my brothers need repentance. I wonder how often he chatted with his brothers about repentance. Probably never. And by implication, he recognizes now his own failure to repent. What they need is repentance. This is a strong clue that the rich man is, in fact, not just condemned because he was an uncaring rich person, but because he's an unbeliever. Neither he nor his brothers ever took Moses and the prophets seriously. So in verse 31, Abraham replies, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone rises or if someone returns from the dead. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 5, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. That's, that's the real biting point Jesus is making with his audience here. Right? It, it, it's... It, Again, the force of it is hard to get across to us, to us moderns, right? It would be like someone coming into a big group of evangelical Christians and saying, none of you believe the Bible. I mean, it seems completely implausible, does it not? Jesus is telling the conservative religious good guys of his days, the Torah study, that you've, you don't believe Moses and the prophets. I can tell by the way you live. And so the, the leadership... They've rejected the call of the kingdom in Jesus because that call of the kingdom contains a radical concern for the poor. We can't simply excise this stuff out of the Bible. So, nevertheless, Schweitzer was right. The parable does speak to us because in many ways we are the rich man. And the world is full of Lazaruses and they're often at our gates. And we cannot embrace the kingdom and be indifferent to them. The gospel is good news for the poor. Jesus says so repeatedly. Now, how we do this, you know, is, is, can be trickier. We certainly simply can't advocate in any unthinking way any of the world's economic systems. We have to hear the law and the prophets, and in our case, the gospel as well. We cannot be simply, without qualification, Austrians or Keynesians 
or some other, pick your Chicago school guys of economics, right? You pick your, econo- your favorite economic theory school. We are from the school of Moses and Solomon and Amos and Jesus. And our economic model is the economy of the kingdom of God. It astonishes me how simple this is and yet how Christian talk of economics won't deal with it. So we know what this monetarist guy says, and we know what this free market guy says, and we know what that guy says, and how about this? What does Amos say? What does Moses say? What does Leviticus say? The, the, the fact that we don't even ask these questions shows a kind of captivity. Now, we can't explore all this now, but it is certain, this much is certain, the law and the prophets require us to be systematic and focused in using our wealth and our time and our energy on behalf of the poor, especially the poor who are brethren. This, this characterized Jesus and it should characterize us. We can start simple with this, right? We have a, ta- we have a box in the narthex where you can help the homeless in Middletown. There's an announcement in the bulletin. This is about as easy as it gets. We should fill that box up and we should need three more boxes. Please check that announcement out. The rich man in this text, he's a busy guy. That's how he got rich. But you know what that meant? It meant he never really actually saw Lazarus. Oh, yeah, yeah, the guy out there by the gate when I drive out in the morning. Yeah, I, I see that guy. Um, and so the text is, is somewhat trying to say to us, look, don't insulate yourselves from seeing poverty around you or in your midst. Don't intentionally, you know, maneuver your life around human misery. This is something we're prone to. We're inclined to do this. We, we want to protect ourselves. Plus, maybe we, we associate these kinds of concerns in a subtle way with works righteousness, maybe the social gospel, maybe theological liberals. Well, none of that's going to excuse you. Or me. We have to resist this kind of um, labyrinth that our hearts put us through on this thing. And the time to act is now. It was too late for the rich man. This is the function of the parable to you and to me. It was too late for him to see Lazarus and to cross the chasm. It was too late to warn his brothers. Too late to hear the law and prophets. Now remember, this cannot be reduced to a purely personal salvation evangelistic message. In other words, yes, that's a true, it's a true point that if a person doesn't repent and embrace Jesus, it'll be too late for them later. But the point here is the repentance and embracing of God in Christ is an embracing of Moses and the prophets and their concern for the weak and the poor and the displaced and the marginalized. That's what the text is calling us to. And at some point it'll be too late to fill those faith indeed ministry boxes up or to work for Habitat for Humanity or to do anything for any poor person. So we've embraced the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And we've been embraced in his compassion then. So let us embrace his compassion for the poor, for the law, the prophets, and the gospel require it.
Amen.